The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Hi, I'm Zach Childs, and welcome to the True Tone Lounge. Today, our guest is John Leventhal, Grammy Award-winning uh, Americana uh, Association <laughs> Instrumentalist of the Year, uh, songwriter of Americana Note. Sociopath, I thought you were going to say. Yes. Well, welcome. Thanks, man. Great to be here. Well, thank you. Well, uh, what are some of your earliest uh, musical memories? Oh, God. Um, you know, well, my early, well, I'm, for better or worse, I do know the first record I bought. It was uh, Battle of New Orleans by Johnny Orton. That was the first record that imprinted me. still think it's a pretty great record. Yeah. And then, of course, later I discovered it's Grady Martin and Harold Bradley and all those great players. Um, but I think like a lot of guys my age, you know, the Beatles are basically ground zero. Okay. Sort of the big bang. And, and that's what caused you to actually pick up the guitar? It did. It did, yeah. Uh, well, it, it caused me to pay attention to music and to feel mysteriously moved by music, you know, at whenever, however old I was when they hit 12 or 13. And, um, uh, you know, that stays with you. I mean, my theory is kind of the music that really gets to you first in that kind of mysterious way where you get that record that you've got to hear every day before you go to school. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you, you, it just sort of busts open your little 12 or 13-year-old heart in a way. In some ways, as we get older, I still think that that remains a template and a foundation for what you like or what you're trying to do. Like in some ways, I suppose even though I've had to consciously jettison a lot of my Beatle influences because of my early productions, I thought I was using them too much. I mean, I, I still think I'm trying to get back at trying to make my own versions of the records that move me. I'm trying to create the feelings in myself that first got to me when I'm 13. This is kind of esoteric, but I, think, I do actually think it's true. I think that that template of the music you love from like 12 to 18 in particular never leaves you. And it sort of leads you on your musical path in some ways. Not that you can't learn a lot of other stuff, but the mystery and the feeling of it, like sort of the pre-analytical part of the music stays with you. Like sometimes I don't really want to know, like I'm, I'm pretty smart musically and I have a pretty wide sense of harmony and stuff and good at hearing even, you know, complex chords. But sometimes I don't really want to know what's going on because I love the mystery of it. I do. I love sort of just uh, love it. So the Beatles, anyway, there's yeah. a long-winded way to say the Beatles. Was, was there a specific Beatles album? Well, I mean, they hit, in, they hit me hot and heavy right from the beginning, but I suppose the album uh, I have mentioned before that really sort of got me was Beatles 65. And okay. that's kind of when they kind of slightly introduced that country and folk thing. Yeah. Like George is starting to play kind of some twangy stuff on I'm a Loser and Babies in Black is on that record, and I'll Be Back. Uh, so there are these really kind of longing, haunting, yeah. like musically they started to get, they're just stepping away slightly from the two and a half minute pop song into these darker things, undoubtedly influenced by Dylan and stuff. Right. But still, that record was huge for me. I mean, that was the record, that was the album. Like, I had to, I had listened to it every day of my life, I'm sure, when I was 13 or 14, you know. I still love it. It still comes on, I still love it. Wow. Yeah. So what was your first guitar? Well, I'm a little bit of a late bloomer, uh, a little unusual that way. So uh, my first real guitar I got my senior year of high school. Uh, I bought the money I saved. I bought a Gibson J50. 
like with the ceramic bridge, super narrow neck. And I didn't even own an electric guitar. Mm -hmm. um, I would occasionally play when my buddy had one, my buddy Robbie had one. Um, and I wasn't, I loved music, but I didn't, uh, where I grew up, there wasn't much of a template for becoming a musician, particularly a pop musician. There were some, uh, I grew up like 20 miles north of Manhattan. So there were some musicians in town, but they were, they had tended to be like, you know, the first cold cellist in the NBC orchestra and that kind of thing. There were no jazz or rock or pop musicians. My parents weren't, my family wasn't that musical. Well, my mom had a certain, uh, she, in retrospect, she had a certain kind of love of music that I think wore off on me. Uh, I didn't really, I bought my first electric guitar my senior year of college, faced with like the prospect of like a real job <laughs> or going to law school or something that would have been like, you know, would have made me a miserable old man. Uh, I decided to take a year off and I bought uh, like a mid-60s ES-335. I knew nothing about electric guitars. Like okay. I didn't know a Telecaster from a Strat from... All I did is I kind of saw like that shape probably on a BB King cover or something. I thought, oh, that's the cool guitar to get. And I bought uh, like a mid 60s 335 for 150 bucks mm -hmm. off like some kind of want, you know, like, you know, back of the newspaper thing. I went to college in Madison, Wisconsin and uh, bought it. And uh, and it was fun for a while. And then I was like, well, why, why don't I sound like all these other guys? And then eventually, you know, pretty quickly in succession, I kind of dialed in James Burton. And, uh, you know, there were lots of other guitar players I loved, too. You know, uh, this was sort of, this would sort of be around 1970. I dialed in James Burton. I dialed in Roy Cooter. I loved Jesse Ed Davis and Curtis Mayfield. I mean, in a, in a really short period of time, a lot of guitar, all of a sudden I started thinking like a guitar player. So the 335 was the first one, the first electric guitar I got. And then somebody stole my J50 somewhere along the line. And then I didn't own an acoustic guitar for a long time till I uh, actually met Sean Colton. And uh, I sold my 335. I owned a Tele, this Tele, and a Strat, mid-60s Strat. Those are the only two guitars I owned. And when I needed an acoustic guitar, I would borrow hers. Yeah, I'm definitely a late bloomer, I would have to say. So take mm -hmm. us from, uh, you know, from the you know, from college <clears throat> to Sean Colvin. What's happening in that period Yeah, of time? okay, that's cool. Yeah, that's like a 10-year yeah. period. So yeah. um, uh, I, I got out of college and decided to take a year off. So I went uh, with some friends to Colorado Springs to be in a band. And uh, we did have a band. There were uh, substances also it, uh, during that time you know, in Colorado. I think we did a fair number of dumb things. Uh, it was actually a great time. Um, and, you know, I... I think my passion for w music and guitar playing was, you know, I was starting to get the bug and, um, you know, I think I was starting to listen more critically. And uh, I also kind of, from a very early age, the songwriting thing was in me, like right away. It wasn't just, uh, like, it's, it's hard to explain. I didn't live in Nashville and I hadn't quite gotten to Manhattan yet. So I think I was just beginning to dial in the session thing, like, oh, you could play on records to make a living. Like, I didn't even really know. I tried to be in this band. And I was writing songs, and maybe we, I was trying to pitch the song somehow, but it was all on a real kind of Bush League level. And then at some point, I just had an epiphany, like, what am I doing here? And if I'm going to really do this, I should be in New York, you know? And I moved back to New York, and I got really lucky. I moved back to New York, and uh, I got a gig in a band that worked all the time so I could make my living playing guitar. 
and the band leader happened to be great. And another musician in the band was a deep musician. And I was the kid in the band. They were all older guys. And uh, it was this guy, his name was Billy Vera, who's actually still around. He lives in LA. Yes. Um, and he, we played in bars and clubs all in the New York area. And we played predominantly, not for people to listen, but for people to dance. And it was my schooling. It was sort of taught me how to be in a band. It taught me how to play and what not to play and when to shut up and when I needed to shine and get a sense of the dynamic and the flow and how to back him up. And Billy pulled from everything. I mean, a lot of like classic R&B and soul from 40s, 50s and 60s and 70s. We played Al Green tunes. We also played Haggard tunes. We played all this stuff. So, and that was like two or three years. And that was really it. Now, other the bass player in the band was this guy Tommy Woke, who then went on to become T Bone Woke. T Bone was on, yeah, all notes and stuff. And, Saturday Night Live. Yeah, and Tommy was a deeply musical guy, and I kept going. This band sounds great, and I kind of intuitively knew it wasn't because of me. <laughs> and I started to realize it's the bass player, it's him. And then I realized, and then immediately I wanted to play bass, and I started playing bass. So pretty pretty early on, I was playing bass too, and. Um, but it was the stance that I, from an early stage, I loved guitar and I wanted to be a guitar player, but I also was thinking about everything else at the same time. Like a lot of guitar players, I suspect, get very hung up in the guitar, or bass player, or drummer, right? They get hung up and sort of focused on their shit and their instrument. But from a very early thing, probably because I wanted to write songs too, I was focused on the guitar as part of a musical ensemble. So the thrust was, how do you be musical? How do you make the whole thing work? How do you create feeling? How do you make the thing surge? How do you make the thing pull back? I was always interested in the whole thing from an early age. I mean, I didn't think of it in these terms at that time, but that was clearly sort of the path leading to being a, rec a record producer. I wasn't thinking like, oh, I'm gonna be a record producer. I was still thinking like, how am I gonna pay my rent? And you know, I'm gonna play guitar, I better play guitar better. But, but um, so that's kind of it. So uh, Billy moved to LA, so the gigs ended. I moved to Manhattan and like really lucky, like really within a relatively short space of time, I started freelancing. I fell in with lots of different um, groups of musicians. I mean, New York's amazing that way. Uh, there, there's so much music and there's so many different kinds of musicians. And in order to work, you really have to honor and, and have the discipline to learn a lot of stuff. Like you kind of have to have at least a, rudiment, a rudimentary ability to like navigate standards because you, you could play if you knew standards, right? Um, so you had to kind of like, I had to grok jazz harmony and the country scene was starting. It was kind of the urban cowboy period. So there was lots of country bars and I fell into a scene that did that. And so my love of Burton and all that had to come out. So I had to learn how to do that. Singer songwriter thing was happening. So there was a lot of different things. And I fell into this one group of musicians, which is pretty extraordinary. You, I would have never, if you'd have told me at the time what would have happened to everybody, I would have just thought, oh, well, you're high. Yeah. But the first night I met Sean Coleman, she was playing, singing backup in Buddy Miller's band. Okay. Like they all lived in Pride. And I had already become friends with Jim Lauderdale and uh, uh, Larry Campbell was playing in Buddy Miller's band. Uh, Tony Garnier has been playing bass Tony with Bob Dillon. Dillon for like 30 years. So that was one of my 
little soul groups of players. I had some other sort of more contemporary pop oriented things that I was doing at the same time. I think maybe that's maybe one thing that's unusual about me. It's like I fell into like some like some people just sort of stayed in their little like rootsy world, which although nobody called it a rootsy world back then. Then there was kind of a folk world. There was kind of like a full-on pop world. There was an R&B world. You had to have that together too. Um, but so I met Colvin and, uh, you know, I just, I think I had the boss to go up to her and say, God, you're great. You know, we should write songs together. I, and the thought had never crossed her mind to write her own songs. She was doing covers. She, she tried it and we clicked. We just started writing these songs and it took a while. Eventually I got a home recording set up and it wasn't like I was trying to be a record producer, but I produced her demos and she got signed to Columbia and they were like, well, who did the demos? And it's like, this guy over here. All right, you produce it. I was like, boom, I'm a record producer. And it won a Grammy and all of a sudden I'm like, I'm a record producer. And then in a relatively short period of time, I produced or co-produced with Rodney Crowell, uh, Lauderdale's first album. He, did a, he actually did a record for Warner Brothers and Jim and I wrote all the tunes. So this all happened in like a 12 month period. Yeah, it was Planet of Love. Yeah, Planet of Love. So those two records sort of came out at the same time and Sean's did really well. Jim's didn't sell, but a lot of the tunes got covered, right? Yeah. And so it opened up a lot of worlds for me, yeah. right? Met well, my current wife and yeah. yeah. Let's back up a little bit. You just kind of... Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> it's a New York thing. What can I tell you? Right. So, uh, first off, how did you start writing songs? I mean, uh, what, what made you want to... Was, was it the Beatles? Or, yeah, yeah, I think the template has to be, at least the spark is the Beatles. And I think um, my early attempts have a Beatle imprint on it. Um, and this will lead to another conversation about how you use your influences or abuse your influences. You mm -hmm. know? So I think a lot of what I've tried to do is honor and use my influences, but not have them show up as a pastiche of cliches in what mm -hmm. I do. I've tried really hard to find original ways of taking all these things that I love. Um, I don't know, man. I just, if you're, it's like, why are you a guitar? It's like, why are you a guitar player? It's like, right. it's just, I felt compelled to write songs in okay. the same way I felt compelled to be a musician. It just was in me. It's in some people. It's not in other people. Okay. And, and writing with, with Sean, you know, she had not written before that? I think she had dabbled a little bit. She had written a couple of tunes, but I don't think she had really embraced it in the way, you know, it's, it's not dissimilar from playing. So if you're going to really embrace playing at some point, you kind of make this thrust to being committed to it and learning about it and putting time into it. Even, even if you're not doing it in like a classically disciplined way of like, I'm going to sit here for four hours and you're still thinking about it. You're thinking guitar, you're thinking music, you're thinking, you're wondering, you're like messing around. Songwriting is the same way. I don't think she had really put energy into it that, and I already had a band which I was writing the tunes in, a, like a pop band. Mm -hmm. And, but I wasn't that happy with it. Uh, you know, I just, you know, I mean, literally, uh, I knew Colvin was great the first night I heard her. And so I just had this intuitive sense we would make a good collaborative team. And it turned out, I mean, it didn't happen like that. We, had, we wrote a bunch of bad songs, too, obviously. Mm -hmm. But after a couple of years, um, you know, through some give and take and her finding her voice as a player, and we were able to sort of find things. I mean, it was basically me writing the music and her writing the lyrics, although okay. there, there are areas where it overlapped. Um, and we were very conscious of wanting to do something that wasn't being done. Or let me say this a better way. 
we just didn't want to cop. We didn't want to make, you know, it was the 80s where a dark period for rootsy music, let's face it. I mean, the Very much kind so. of roots revolution didn't really start until the 90s. And I mean, the 80s, we, you, it was still sort of the, the tyranny of the mammoth backbeat and a lot of synth stuff. And, you know, record companies were only interested in hits and, you know, not that they're not interested in hits now, right. but you know what I mean? It's sort of like, what are you going to do with some eccentric, weird folk record or folk, whatever. I don't know what that first record is. People call it a folk record. I never thought about that. Because the truth of the matter is, uh, I love pop music too. How, how could you love the Beatles and not love pop music? I appreciate yeah. and honor and respect the tradition of trying to come up with a hit. Now, do I spend my heart and soul trying to figure out how to have a hit? No. But it's part, in the same way that all these other things are part of me, it's just part of me. I love the tradition of having a hit. When Colvin and I had Sonny came home on the radio, I was like, this is awesome. It's like we have a hit. We finally got a real hit. You know? yeah. um, so we love pop music, too, but we weren't trying to write hits or anything. We were, it was just all mixed up in what we were doing. So in the in kind of the, the, the craft side of things, you, you kind of tended to uh, to come up with music and then she would write lyrics to For that. the most part, that's, for with a bunch of people I collaborate with, it kind of divides that way. But with other people, like with Jim and I, when we were writing, we haven't actually written in a while, we would do both, both of us would do both. With Like William Bell, yeah. I would write lyrics too. You know, right. it just depends on the project. Like okay. certain... I mean, I've been fortunate enough, like my wife, it's like, I'm just completely flabbergasted by how great a lyricist she is. She's just like, so why would I, I there's no way I'm going to write lyrics with Roseanne because it doesn't get any better. I'm, I mean, I'm just really lucky. And she has a real point of view as a lyricist. So when she writes songs, particularly for herself, that's what her spirit, that's what she's bringing to it. And the same with people like Colvin and who else, like Mark Cohn or any of those yeah. people, they have a strong lyrical point of view. Okay. Well, let's, let's move. So again, with, with Steady On, you, yeah. you won, won a Grammy. All yeah. of a sudden you're a, a Grammy award-winning producer. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so then I, you were, you know, where's my Porsche? So, so then, the, you know, I guess the, the next, you know, kind of stop is, uh, is Jim Waterdale. Is yeah, that, well, they're all, yeah, it's all pretty much right in there. Okay. Yeah. So Jim and I had been buddies for almost a decade at that point. Like yeah. I told you, like I met Jim and Larry Campbell and I were really good friends, still really good friends. And Jim, and there was like kind of this scene, this kind of, well, do you remember the whole urban cowboy thing? Yes. Yeah. So there was like this seven or eight year period in New York where there were all these bars and clubs like the Lone Star, City Limits, right. Crystal Palace, all these places where you could play and Mm -hmm. gig right make a hundred bucks a night right yeah so we were all all in dozens of bands you know so there were lots of singers and we were all getting hired you know larry and i i can't tell you how many gazillions of gigs i did with larry and me both playing guitar and we played with jim and tony was a bass player and uh it was kind of endless in a lot of ways um and Waternell and i at some point i probably just turned to him too and said man we should write songs and we did and we both really liked what we were doing. And we didn't know what it was because it wasn't particularly commercial country, but it wasn't like all that uncommercial. I mean, we were, I don't know, man, we didn't know what we were doing. We were Mavericks. And then by some fluke, Rodney heard this demo tape that Jim and I made. Okay. And he's like, who's this guy? Yeah. I said, oh, this guy, Jim Waterdale in New York. Well, I'll get him a deal. So Rodney got Jim a deal on Warner Brothers. 
and uh, and and Roddy was going to produce it, but he's like, well, who, it was the same exact thing. Who's the guy who did the demos? This guy then thought, well, let's get him in. So that, <laughs> so that was really it. Um, um, now, is that where you met Roseanne? That's where I met Roseanne. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We won't talk about the rest of that, but <laughs> no, we can't. No, it's all too. It's, it's totally cool. Yeah, I met Roseanne, and then I produced a record on Rodney, as you all say down here, okay. making a record on Joey. Yeah. In New York, we say we're making a record with. Down here, you yeah. make a record on. I'm not sure why that is prepositionally different. <laughs> it's taking um, advantage of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember the first time I heard. I think Tony Brown was the first person. I said, "I'll make." Yeah, I'm making a record on. And I was like, "What? <laughs> what do you mean you're making a record with?" Um, uh, I, then I made a, I made a record with Rodney somewhere in there, and I made a life is messy. Yeah, life is messy. Made a record with Mark Cohen. It was a busy though, like. Like 89 to like 93 was a pretty busy period for me. Okay. So, yeah. And kind of hitting back on, on, on Jim Lauderdale. Sure. You, know, you, you kind of touched on the fact that the album was not really a commercial success. No. <laughs> but <laughs> now I'm one of the few people that went out and, and bought the record it. at that uh, Tower Records oh, yeah, when, once when again, I was in yeah. college. And, uh, and I bought it because I saw Jim on Naked on, on the on, cover. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Zach. <laughs> I, I always felt like that's what destroyed it. They made him take his they, shirt off. I was like, no, don't do that. I, well, I, I saw him on television. He was on the American Music Shop, and it was with Mark O'Connor and, and a, sure. a bunch of heavy you know, players, and they were performing songs off the album. And uh, you know, from that, I went out and found, found the album. And I didn't really hear anything from it until all of a sudden... The George Strait movie came out. Right. Yeah, that was great for us. And all of a sudden, there were a number of those songs. And it was almost like the album that you made was almost like an expensive songwriter demo. It's exactly what it was. Yeah, George Strait cut a couple of those tunes. Lord, I mean, thank you. I've never actually met him, but, you know, yeah. I mean, I say this semi-facetiously, but in a way, those two tunes put the down payment on my house. Yeah, yeah. I mean, pretty amazing. So yeah, it was a King of Broken Hearts. No, the, the well, ends. he may have done King of Broken Hearts. Jim, that's the one song Jim wrote by himself. He did side, Sidewalk Ends, and he did this song. Wasn't a hit. Oh my God, I I wasn't. Oh God, I wasn't fooling around. I think it's called. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm embarrassed that I can't remember the other song. He uh, cut two songs that Jim and I wrote. Okay. And then put one of them on his greatest hits, and it sold like five million records. Or yeah, something. yeah. It, was, it was also in the box set. Yeah, yeah straight yeah. out of the box. Yeah, yeah. yeah. God bless George Strait. God bless George Strait. <laughs> and, and, you've never, and you've never met him? I have not met him. No. Okay. Well, you know, I have kind of a weird schizophrenic career where I've had this slight little inroad into country in Nashville, but, you know, I live in New York, and most of what I do isn't really about the Nashville thing. It's, I mean, I've Maybe now a little more with the advent of Americana, that part of Nashville. Mm -hmm. Hard to figure. So, kind of continuing chronologically. Mm -hmm. So you you get you know you, again another, I guess another one of your friends in New York is Mark Cohn. Sure. And then you know he has w Walking in Memphis, Massive. which is a huge yeah. hit. Yeah. And and you you worked on that record also. I did. Well, this was all. I can't keep the timeline straight. It was ex an exciting few years. That was actually maybe even before. Is that Mark? Did it come out in ninety or ninety one? I can't remember. I hadn't. Mark once again. This is going to sound funny. I hadn't thought of this. Mark apparently there was these demos I made with Colvin, 
in which I had either played percussion or sort of programmed some drums in a slightly quirky way or perhaps that wasn't being done maybe. Okay. Like it wasn't about the or anything. I had, I was kind of early on, I was taking the EQ and rolling some of the high end off of these little drum machiney things, but I would play shakers on top of them and you know, clap and use a compressor to like make the clap sound like a cool backbeat. Or this is early on in my little home studio. So I had this like five or six song demo that got Colvin signed and that got passed around apparently. And Mark heard that and he had been cutting his first album and, and actually cut an entire album using drummers and was ultimately unhappy with it. And he heard that, he said, that's what I want. Who's that? And it's John Leventhal. So he hired me to, not to play guitar. He didn't know me. He didn't know what I did. He thought I was a drummer percussionist. Okay. So he hired me to come in and do drumming and percussion and programming on this first record. And I, you know, I said, yeah, it's cool. But, you know, I said, you know, I play guitar and bass too. And uh, he said, okay, well, bring guitars and bass. And I took over. <laughs> so I ended up arranging and playing guitar, Hammond and bass on Walking in Memphis. And then I produced Mark's next record. So I helped arrange his first record. But it was exciting because that, that was another song that was on the radio all the time. It was nice to hear yourself on the radio all the time. Oh. Those days so long ago. <laughs> and then you ended up producing Roseanne. So how, how did she end up contacting you to produce her record? Well, I met her through, you know, Jim and I met uh, Rose. You know, we met uh, uh, when I came down to do Jim's record, I met Rose. And uh, that was that. And then I did a record on Rodney not too long after that. Um, and, uh, 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 you know, without getting too much into our personal story, which is really not all that juicy. I mean, you know, Roseanne's uh, and Rodney got divorced and she really wanted to move to New York. Um, uh, and, you know, she contacted me and we sort of hit it off as a couple. And uh, she asked me to produce this album, The Wheel. She was uh, transitioning out of her commercial country phase she had made a, a really lovely record called Interiors and it didn't really do anything and I think right. she felt basically I mean, we could get into a you know a more uh, in-depth discussion of the music community here or anywhere but basically they didn't care about it at all you know there weren't any hits on it and so they weren't they weren't interested in that what right. we now call singer songwriter sort of right. the beginning of the singer songwriter thing right. Um, right, right before that, she had had King's Record Shop, which, massive, had, been, which had been a huge massive, record. Yeah, yeah. like had like four or five number one records, or four or five top ten records. In, yeah. in and the record label wanted another yeah. one. And it was a good record. Yeah. And she just, well, that's my wife. She's a, she can be a bit of a contrarian, but she's ever thrusting, ever looking for new stuff. I mean, it's hard not to love her for it. And, uh, you know, yeah, she threw, she threw something away. And I'm sure a lot of people in the business here like thought she was probably crazy you know and maybe she was but she was crazy in a beautiful way so she moved to new york we made this record the wheel i it's a complicated record for me i don't like my production from that period it's really hard for me to go back and listen to my early records i don't like what i was doing at all no. it's too much just too much okay. i think i was just trying to do too much and trying to get too much in there i hadn't fully embraced or understood how to really do a whole lot less but have it mean a whole lot more. That's something you just gotta learn. I mean, I've been doing it 30 years now, so I like to think I'm starting to learn it now. Uh, so a lot of those early records where I feel like I'm flexing my, 
you know, I'm throwing in the kitchen sink and everything. It's like, oh, God, stop. I mean, I think there are a few, couple of good songs we wrote on there. Lord knows she wrote some beautiful songs. Um, and the record was really critically well-received, but not, like, Interior's not particularly commercially successful. But that's how I got to that. There was, uh, you know, one, probably the, you know, the first cut, The Wheel, you know, had, had Stuart Smith. Awesome. Well, what can you say about Stuart? He's such a, you know, he's my kind of musician. He's uh, got all you need to play great guitar, but he doesn't let the guitar dictate what the statement's supposed to be. So he's also deeply musical, and that's my kind of musician. It seems like the, the two of you, you're, you know, You've kind of worked with a, a lot of the, you know, some of the same artists, and 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 yeah, sometimes yeah. you've you've cut the record, and he he's toured with them, and yeah, it's true yeah. with Sean. Yeah, yeah, he's gone out. Yeah, he's he's definitely had to go out and play my bits on a lot of Sean stuff. Yeah, and then he was playing with Roseanne before. Yeah, that's where I met Stuart, and that's where I heard that guitar part. Like we were going to do the record, and she was like, "Well, you know, I've been playing it with Stuart." I said, oh, yeah, let me hear it. And I heard it. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, for about, I think for about a half a nanosecond, I thought like, well, maybe I could. No, let's get Stuart. Right? So yeah. is, 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 that, is there a delay on that? Or is, is that just you know, I, it's You uh, know, I did actually work it out once because I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And it's a, I think it's like banjo roll number one, basically. Okay. It's actually, I'm not going to embarrass myself for you know, listening or viewing public, but it's basically... I think it's just standard banjo roll over D at nine, you know. Okay. So, uh, and I, I, I think I may have put a little delay on there okay. too. It's and, it's so clean and, and yeah, yeah. ringing out perfectly. Well, Stuart plays with thumb and finger pick, so he has a super clean sound. I mean, cleaner than I norm. I, I play with these. That's I can't play with thumbs or finger picks, but um, yeah. he has that sound going on, and he likes a bunch of compression, and that was perfect for that record. Yeah. Very cool. And Stuart understands parts and, and the purpose of parts. And the parts are supposed to be in there to enhance everything. And if you're going to play a part, make it mean something so you can have it speak and stuff. You know? well, let's take a quick break. And sure. then, uh, we'll come right back and we'll, uh, we'll talk more about you know, production and uh, cool. also talk about guitars. Sounds good. This has been an audio presentation by True Tone. TrueTone.com.